So let's get into it. Okay. This is the part where Jeremiah puts in uh, cool music. <laughs> That's why I had to say that instead. Just get into it. Uh, you're going to have the transition phrase. <laughs> yeah. Welcome to the Respond Worship Podcast. We are an auditive extension of the Respond Worship Retreat, where we aim to inspire worship ministries for greater effectiveness, instruct teams in worship skills, and ignite a community of worship teams. Uh, my name is Ryan. I am your host for today. Jeremiah is not with us, as I think I said last episode with Corey. Um, he's just got a lot going on between teaching guitar at Ozark Christian College and touring with uh superstart which is a elementary middle elementary school weekend yeah fourth and fifth grade um and he's a father and a husband and a worship pastor at a church and i can't even wrap my head around all that uh but i'm not joined by him today i'm joined by josh huckabee hey josh hey how's it going ryan it's going good I like that uh, super awkward intro, like we haven't been talking for 15 minutes, <laughs> <laughs> but I was part of it too. Um, so uh, <clears throat> Josh to me has been, um, he was my worship pastor for a short amount of time. Uh, I was a night janitor at his church for a year plus. That's how I, uh, or no, may, maybe like eight months or so. I don't know. Uh, that's how I bought my engagement ring for my wife. And uh, he was the worship pastor I interned under. Um, but for people who may not know you, who are you? Well, uh, I am Josh Hackabay. Uh Yeah. Child of God. Born accepted and loved by God. Um, I'll get more specific. No, yeah, um, I, I very sarcastically put in the question, who are you? Like, <laughs> state your identity to us. <laughs> Might take a while. Um, yeah, no, that's who I am. Yeah. Um, what do you want to know about me? I, I'd love to know everything. But at the start, tell me about uh, your family, your wife, etc. Okay. Uh, I am married to Andrea. We have four kids, Maddie, Micah, Isaiah, and Eden. And their age ranges are 14 to nine years old. Uh, Andrew and I have been married for coming up on 16 years. And, uh, we have a dog named Chloe who is a poodle. How recent is that dog? Uh, we've had her for like three years. Really? Three or maybe oh, coming up on four years. Okay. So I think I, you got her after I was yep. out of town. Okay. Yep. That's why that makes sense. Um, yep. Yeah. And as I, as I, uh, already spilled the beans, you had been, uh, a worship pastor in Joplin and I'd interned under you. Uh, what are you doing now? Uh, right now I am the professor of worship at St. Louis Christian college in uh, Florissant, Missouri, up here in the St. Louis metro area. 
and uh, and actually just recently accepted a position at Gateway Christian Church as the the worship and formation pastor uh, there. So I, I'll actually be transitioning at the end of the year from the college uh, uh, to to Gateway full time, and and kind of doing a part time thing there right now in in the middle. But the the college, uh, St. Louis Christian College, is actually going to be merging with Central Christian College of the Bible uh, at the end of this year, and so. Uh, I didn't want to move to Moberly, uh, and that they've uh, they've graciously graciously extended some uh, potential opportunities for me to be able to still do some teaching and stuff. But uh, we started attending Gateway, and uh, really love it there, and really found a camaraderie with people and the staff, and uh, the just happened to work out where they needed a they needed a person uh, that had that particular skill set and passion, and and so I'm stepping into that. Yeah. That's awesome. What'd you say your title was? Worship and uh, worship and formation. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's awesome. Um, I know that uh, near the end of our time, you're finishing up your master's degree. Mm-hmm. Um, so, what's your your education background? Yeah. So I attended uh, Ozark Christian College. I probably should say that quietly around here since I'm at I'm at SLCC <laughs> in your office. Uh, no, at, they, they don't. They don't. They don't hold it against me. <laughs> um, I graduated from Ozark uh, back in uh, when was that? 2009. Did a bachelor's there and an associate's there, and then uh, went straight into ministry. Did ministry for probably about uh, eight, nine years, and then went back to school, attended Portland Seminary up in Portland, Oregon, uh, of George Fox University, and uh, completed a master master's in spiritual formation up there. Yeah, that's awesome. In uh, 2014, yeah. I was experiencing my first heartbreak from my eighth grade girlfriend. Uh, so let's move on. <laughs> uh, so... Um, I think the first time, like I said, this podcast is, uh, an extension of the respond worship retreat. I think the first time I ever went to respond was because you took me, uh, with college heights. Um, so you've had some involvement with respond in the past. Uh, what has that been? Yeah. So, uh, let me think here. I probably, I think I, I think I attended the very first, uh, the very first event, actually, uh, the very first retreat weekend. Uh, and it was, it was maybe like a month after I had gotten, uh, to college heights right after I'd started at college heights. So, um, and that's where I met Corey. I I knew of Corey, of course. Uh, but, uh, and we had some mutual friends, but, uh, that's where I got to meet Corey for the first time. Uh, so, and I think maybe a couple years later, maybe it was, yeah, a couple years later, I led worship for the event one weekend, probably three or four years after that, I, I was the main speaker one weekend, um, weekend pastor. And then uh, a couple of years ago, last year, I led worship again, brought a, brought a team, team up from, from College Heights. So, uh, that was sort of my involvement specifically there. I've helped with um, different workshops over the years. Uh, my wife has too. And then for the for the last couple of years, I, I had served on the leadership team uh, for for the retreat and uh, really enjoyed that with uh, Jeremiah and Creighton and, and Corey. So, yeah, 
they uh, that's actually how I got my start on the leadership team. You left and they said, hey, we need any warm body to <laughs> fill a seat. Is anybody here? Let's just say it wasn't hand. hard to replace me. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my gosh. Um, and one thing I <coughs> forgot to ask about uh, for our for our audience is you guys moved to St. Louis and your wife took a job because she had just finished a degree in music or vocal performance or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Vocal music education. Yeah. yeah. And then she mm-hmm. uh, took a job as the high school choir. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mostly know that because when I was on your team uh, for whatever, six months when I was interning, um, mm-hmm. you led the band for the most part, but she would take the vocalist off to another room. Um, cause mm-hmm. her, her mom was the, at St. Louis Christian. Yeah. She was the, she was the voice teacher for like yeah. 13, 14 years. I want to say something like that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And she confirms my hunch that every really good vocalist is the, is the child of a voice teacher and they just had <laughs> vocal lessons 24 seven. Um, yeah. She's amazing. Um, okay. Last question about you, but also kind of about your experience in your life. Uh, What's a recent ministry win that you've experienced or you've been around past couple of years? You know, like that's something that's something I've thought a lot about actually in the last year because uh, I was I was at College Heights for uh, over nine years, and um you know, you start to think about, especially because I was transitioning out of, you know, more explicitly pastoral ministry as I came into this job, which sort of just fell in my lap. Um, uh, yeah, I started really, you know, taking a lot of time to kind of evaluate what was, what, what's been the meaning of the last 16 years, you know, or what, what significance has it played? What, so, you know, if I, if I stopped pastoral ministry, which I'm not, of course, but if I had, um, what would my, what would my legacy have been, you know, in some ways? And really, uh, really what I've come back to time and time again is, uh, kind of what the apostle Paul talks about when he, when he, when he tells the church that there, there are those who are his joy and his crown, those disciples, those people that he had the privilege and honor of imprinting himself on, you know, uh, what he says in first Corinthians about following me as I follow Christ. Um, and I, I think for me, when I look back over, over all of those years, I don't remember any, you know, uh, specific worship services. I don't remember, you know, systems I put in place per se. If I do remember any of those things, it's, it's only because of the way that they impacted the people that God put in my path. And, uh, and so when I think of, you know, wins or successes, um, I really just think of people's faces, you know, they're, they're my joy and my crown, but, and really, you know, when we leave this, uh, when we leave this, uh, state of existence, the only thing that remains of us is the people whose lives we have touched in some way or imprinted ourselves on. That's how we actually continue to, to live on. Um, it's, it's what happened with Elijah and Elisha, right? Um, Elisha, Elisha had a first hand close up view of Elijah's life. 
And right before he knows Elijah's getting ready to die and he says, can I have a double portion of your spirit? You know, the spirit of a person is that that's that what it's their you-ness, you know, it's their us-ness, the meanness of them. Um, and so what a what a beautiful picture for Elisha to ask this person whom he spent so much time with, you know, intimately knows this guy, warts and all, and to ask him for a double portion of his spirit. And of course, then you see how Elijah's ministry actually continues through the work of Elisha. Um, even though Elijah is gone to be in the presence of God, taken up in a chariot of fire. Um, so I would say uh, that's not real specific, uh, but but that is what I consider to be that that win or success from the last, you know, decade and a half of ministry. Yeah, I, I spent a third of that amount of time, maybe a tiny bit over a third of that amount of time in uh my worship ministry in Rala and I'll have to admit that was it mm-hmm. for me too, that um, not, not only the people's lives I'd impacted, but just, just the, the close ties and the strings being pulled away mm-hmm. relationally mm-hmm. Um, as I left. And I know a, a handful of kids in the youth group who um, I really trained and raised up in in worship ministry and in faith and, um, had great conversations with, and it was, it was easy to leave the Nord stage three behind. It was very <laughs> easy to leave that. It was really hard to leave some of those kids, mm-hmm. some of the people I served on the, the normal Sunday worship team with, um, yep. that, that was the, the much harder part for me. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. One last thing before we get into our discussion today, uh, we try to do a worship resource every week and Every week, every episode, I wish it was weekly, but this isn't my job. Um, We try to do a resource every week and it could be administrative, like it's been planning center and some stuff before Um, could be some leadership or spirituality or technical skill development thing. I know uh, when we interviewed Michael Hester on, um, on tech stuff, that's, that shows how, how little (laughs) tech stuff. Um, Anyway, when we interviewed him on worship production, uh, he had a, a podcast and other stuff from MXU that we could check out. And also we do uh, music albums and whatever or art different times. Um, I don't know what we're going to say, but Josh does take it away. Josh. Uh, well, you know, I, I'd probably, uh, and I think it, it really relates to our discussion today. Um, I think in a lot of ways, uh, but a book that I, I've just rest, uh, recently read that just came out uh, this year by a, 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 socio- a Christian sociologist named uh, Felicia Wu Song uh, is called Restless Devices. Um, and it's really her take as a sociologist on the, really the spirituality, the, the, uh, the cultural liturgy that mobile devices uh, are in in our world and our life, and how those those mobile devices are forming us, that we we think they're more neutral uh, than they are, and so uh, I'd, I'd highly recommend uh, that book. I think that's you know there's a there's a there's a medical pandemic that's that's been going on for the last couple of years but there's uh 
there's another pandemic uh, that's accompanying it and actually I think making it worse. And, and it has to do with our, our uh, receptivity to everything technological as just immediately good or inherently good. Um, and it's shaping us in ways that we're even not conscious of, which is actually, I would say, the most dangerous kind of shaping <laughs> and forming that can occur. So uh, I'd recommend that resource. And then along with it, um, it would be James, James Smith's book, You Are What You Love. Um, for worship pastors, I think both of these books, you know, a James Smith's book probably is going to be a little more paradigmatic, uh, on just the, the idea that what we do in terms of our habits forms us. And so then Felicia Wu Song's book is a little more nuanced and focused at a particular, uh, element of that, that's dominating a lot of our emotional and mental and physical space uh, in our present milieu. So those are the two I recommend. Yeah, no, those are, those are great resources. And I think that's really going to interact with our discussion today. So let's get into it. This week, we're talking about the worship pastor as theological dietitian. Um, I think this one of the chapters with the most syllables in it for the least words. Um, but he starts off in this really interesting way. He gives kind of a, I don't know if it's personal. He names a guy's name, but it's like you have no way of knowing if it's just like a parable, an example, or or mm -hmm. a real person's experience. But he talks about um, a guy who goes to a church who just uh, focuses on joy and and happiness and how easy the Christian life is and nothing else. Um, mm -hmm. and how, when bad stuff happens to this guy, he, he doesn't have the ability to understand it from a faith perspective. It's so dissonant with the faith he has. Uh, and it kind of ends up in this quote, if suffering doesn't fit into the equation of faith, when it happens, we have no categories for relating to God through suffering. Mm -hmm. Um, and as I attended uh, the church you used to lead worship at when you were there and and was just under your worship ministry leadership, I felt like this wasn't a thing you strayed away from. Mm -hmm. um, but I moved from there to um, another church at another time, um, and they specifically had the, the, the philosophy um, that people have enough pain and hurt in the world we don't need to add on to it mm -hmm. in church. Mm -hmm. What do you what do you think about um, how how church and worship services interact with 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 some of those harder categories that aren't easy and light? Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, I can certainly understand uh, you know the rationale behind uh, the later example that you gave at your previous church. Um, because it is, you know, life is, life is hard. Um, there's a, there's a Ben Rector song where he said the, the lyric in the verse is, here's a truth. Life sucks sometimes. <laughs> that's yeah. just, that's the line, yeah. you know, and it's like, yep, that's, that is, that's pretty much how it is, you know? And so, yeah, do we want to kind of like bring up 
you know, all that stuff when people are coming to church, like maybe just give them a reprieve for a second, you know? Um, and so I, I can understand that philosophy, you know, I can understand the rationale behind that. The problem I think with it is that it, it sort of implicitly creates this false dichotomy then. And it begins to teach people that their, their relationship with God should, should only be filled with what they perceive as happiness or joy, or they should only, you know, they, they should only really interact with God when they're happy yeah. or when they're joyful. Cause you know, this is the, this is the, everybody putting a smile on You're you're sitting in the car fighting with your wife as you come into the church building. And then, you know, and you just got the scowl on your face. And as soon as you yeah. see the first greeter at the door, I mean, you're just like bright eyed. Hey, bushy how tail. are you? you know? yeah. I'm oh, great. It's so good to see you brother, you know, yeah. <laughs> God bless you today. You know, it's just like, you know, who are we fooling? And I think it, this is just my own take personally, but, uh, there's a there's an in, inauthenticity about that that I think um I think God probably is just going like I'd rather just have you come in all sloppy. Yeah. You know. Um God's not afraid of your sloppiness. Uh and in fact if you want to learn how to relate to God, it's probably going to be through your pain. Um the problem is we we like to read all the psalms and read all the psalms that are you know praise and yeah. talk about how victorious God's going to be and all that stuff but then you know when we get to the psalms of lament we're like yeah we can we we can't wait to get to the end you know yeah. when it kind of turns it around um but the problem is when we deny we deny God access to that pain we're actually we're not dealing with reality and, uh, and reality is where God exists. Yeah. We so, were made in the image of a God who feels more than just happiness and joy. That's right. And, uh, I was, I was, uh, I was setting up for this and I had two books in my backpack. I had the worship pastor by Zach Hicks and I had a book I'm reading for a spirituality class as I'm finishing up my master's. Uh, I'm reading it for the second time. Technically Ozark, if you're <laughs> listening, this is the second time. I totally read it the first time, um, but I'm reading it for the first time right now. And it's Emotionally Healthy Spirituality by uh, Peter or Pete Scazzaro. I don't remember what the cover says. Yeah, Scazzaro. I took my bookmark out and I was like, God, ah, I, I want to remember where I was. So I was flipping through to put my bookmark back in. And I read this line he had in there talking about the Psalms. And he said something like the Psalms cover the full spectrum of human emotion. And in many mm -hmm. of our worship services, Many of these psalms have been deemed unacceptable for corporate worship, mm -hmm. and I, 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 uh, that that draws me back. So both of us went to Ozark and had a deep connection with Matt Stafford, who was on a couple episodes ago. Um, and I remember a time I was on Frontline, Ozark's traveling worship team, and uh, we would, I guess, to save money, but also to promote the college and also to whatever, we'd have camps during the summer during the weekdays. And then in order to get from one camp to the other, you stay at a church. And so they're, they have like host homes and people keep you in their house for a night. And as the trade-off, you lead worship on Sunday morning or preach or lead a, a concert. If your church had a bell tower, 
we probably led a concert on Saturday night instead of Sunday morning worship. Um, that's just the truth. And uh, <laughs> but there's a time he had to preach. I promise I'm getting there. There's a time he had to preach. And I remember we dared him to preach Psalm 137. The, the so angry. I wish you would smash their baby's heads on the rocks. We we're like, Matt, you don't know these people. We dare you to go in there guns blazing Psalm 137 and he did. And it was so good, but it was so good. Cause it was so funny because that's yep. so unacceptable for uh -huh. like how our churches normally operate. If, if there's a place for anger, it's fueled by, by, and, and this is usually like seldom and, and more extreme. I don't know what I'm trying to say here, but, but like the examples I see of anger in church are usually like, really weirdly political or really weirdly whatever and never like it's just okay to feel angry right now yeah it's never about yeah. the emotion it's always about the the cause or something but mm -hmm. but otherwise anger isn't an, an acceptable thing to to feel and to be led into in corporate worship and sadness and lament and loss and grief yep yeah well and you know when you think about it for some reason we get it in our head that we relate to God differently than we relate to other people yeah. in our lives in our, in the rest of our relationships, you know, but you know, it's, you have to ask yourself the question, why do you get, why do you get angry at someone that you have a relationship with? Yeah. And it's actually because you care. If you didn't get angry, you, it wouldn't bother you. You know, because yeah. and it tells you that the relationship's inconsequential to you. It doesn't really matter. You get angry because you expect something, right? Yeah. And if you never get angry at God, you have to ask yourself, what kind of relationship do I actually have with God? Then it becomes a relationship of denial. And that's actually not a relationship at all. I'm just piecing this together in my head. Um, but but I've. Uh as friends of mine have gotten married and on, on occasion they ask me about marriage advice. I, I usually say uh, the deeper somebody gets into your life, the more easily they can hurt you, even if they didn't want to. Mm -hmm. And it's just that like how deeply it is in your life is, is how much sway it has over, over how okay you feel in any moment. Yeah. Um, and so the yep. fact that my wife can make me feel all of the negative emotions that I try to run from on a daily basis. It's not a sign that she hates me or that, that, uh, that we're going into bad territory. It's usually a sign that like I care about her and she cares about me and we're the two mm -hmm. closest people for each other. Yeah. Yeah. So that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Your relationship with God, he doesn't mm -hmm. make you angry. Yeah. Sometimes well, not all the time. Intimacy. <clears throat> intimacy is built off of vulnerability. And, uh, when I'm vulnerable, well, the, the word, the word vulnerable comes from the Latin word, uh, vulnus, which means wound. So when I'm vulnerable, it means I'm woundable. And that's actually, that's where intimacy can, can begin to exist because I've actually <clears throat> opened myself to you enough to allow you to hurt me. You know, and obviously I would say interject here that I don't think God ever intends to hurt us, though sometimes we we interpret things that God does towards us as hurtful. Right. Or sometimes 
when we're being disciplined or there's discipline occurring or something in our life we can take as discipline, <laughs> uh, it is painful, right? Uh, what's the point of that pain, right? Is it retributive or is it restorative? Well, with God, I would say it, it must be restorative. And so that's where we learn to trust the intentions of the one doing it. It's kind of like when you're a kid and you scraped your knee, uh, the last thing you want is for your mom or your dad to be touching it, cleaning it. And yet they know that if they don't clean it, pour the alcohol, peroxide, whatever, whatever they're going to put on it, you receive it as torture as a kid. <laughs> you're like, yeah. no, you know, um, <laughs> why would you hurt me? You know? yeah. <laughs> and yet your parent knows, Hey, if I don't do this, this actually could become a, a, a worse thing that then has to be dealt with. So yeah. Not to belabor that, but no, no, I think, I think it's, it's a, a really important point. It's a great point. Uh, it's, and I think carrying that into our worship ministries is important um, mm -hmm. because otherwise we're, we're expecting people to be a 10th of themselves. Yep. Um, and, and uh, what we're teaching them about God is maybe a 10th of who God is or a hundredth or a millionth. Um, he, Zach Hicks has this quote in that uh, intersection. He said, uh, as worship leaders, we have a pressing question before us. If all the people of God had, hold up, if all the people of God had were the worship services we plan and led, what would they know about him and how would they relate to him? Mm -hmm. And it's this like, it, it agrees with everything we've been saying and, and uh, with the example he gave at the beginning um, that, that if God is one tenth of our emotions, like, like we're not understanding him fully. If God can only be happy and joyful and whatever, then maybe he isn't deep enough in our lives and us in his that, that, mm -hmm. uh, that we could cause pain and anger and whatever, because we're so vulnerable and so close and, and, and what happens between one and the other matters. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and there's this really, I know you probably feel this too. There's this really unfair burden on, on worship leaders to, to facilitate this in corporate worship gatherings. Um, Zach Hicks says mm -hmm. again, the, the people in our churches by and large aren't studying their Bibles much on their own, nor do the majority of them avail themselves of the educational and spiritual resources offered by the church. For many corporate worship is where they learn about God. That's mm -hmm. it. Mm -hmm. um, and it's, I, I definitely grew up in churches where um, that was, it was the norm that it was like, just happy. You do that greeting and everybody's smiling. And, and if you're not mm -hmm. smiling, we need to fix that right. rather than it's okay that you're not doing okay. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yeah. And that's, that's a, that's an value. That, that was actually a value that uh, when I was at college Heights that we had, that was like a stated value that guided kind of how we planned and thought. Um, it, it was a value of authenticity. And one of the ways we articulated that was exactly what you just said, Ryan, was how do people know it's okay to not be okay? Yeah. Did, was there something that we did in the service or said, or there was an example given, or there was a story told or something that actually gives permission, right? Sometimes it's just about giving space. Yeah. You know, people, people are not naturally reflective. Yeah. They just aren't. And we aren't because it's painful most of the time. 
to start really thinking about your life. You become discontent, which is why, you know, that's why I recommended the, the Restless Devices book, because quite frankly, we can't wait, you know, five seconds for somebody to go to the bathroom without yeah. jumping on our phone and distracting ourselves. I think the average yeah. bathroom time spend has gone up like a hundred million percent. That's just yeah. personal reflective since sure. YouTube and phones and all that. Yeah. 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 You know, and it's just like, just, just think about it for a second. What if you spent, you know, every time you sit down and you're waiting for something throughout your day, what if instead of getting out your phone, you just took the time to reflect a little bit, brought some consciousness back to your life with God, right? Um, yeah. Instead of going off into something else. So it, 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 there's a space thing that we can do, though, uh, from a corporate worship standpoint, I think that allows for that, too, because that's part of the training. You know, um, when else are people going to get space and quietness and stillness in yeah. their life? You've got 60 to 75 minutes, maybe on a Sunday morning. Just give them five minutes, you know, just sing one chorus and then shut up. Yeah. There is <laughs> and invite a, people to take advantage, you know. The, the church I served at before here, um, we, they didn't, my leadership didn't love a ton of the like prayer prompt moments and the, and the things outside of the norm. Um, but one thing they were really hard on, like they really, really, really wanted me to do this was to not sing any lyrics during communion. And mm -hmm. one, one of the senior pastors, it was like his, his thing that he didn't want that. And it was because there's no other time where we're not talking or, or like listening to a person in the mm -hmm. whole service. It's the only time I can sit down and be quiet. Yep. <laughs> and it, he was right. Like sure. every other point in our services was. Um, something you're doing, something you're saying, or something you're listening yep. to actively from a person. Um, well, think about it from a production standpoint, yeah. you know, uh, you know, at larger churches or events or whatever, like I remember going, I remember, uh, visiting a church once, uh, during the week I was, uh, I had my team with me and we were sort of just touring their facility and asking questions about how they did things, the systems they had and all that stuff. But the lady who we were walking around with, <clears throat> we were talking about kind of the flow of service. Yeah. And at some point it came up like, well, you know, what do you guys, do you have any like time where you um, just don't have anything going on? And she, like, she very quickly replied, we don't do dead space. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it was just like, and that, but that's actually how we, that's actually how production is evaluated. Right. If you see dead space on NBC during the Olympics and a live event or the Super Bowl or what, yeah. you know, whatever it is, you go, what's going wrong? Something yeah. went wrong. Somebody missed a cue. Somebody didn't come out. Somebody didn't, you know, the song was supposed to start. The, the tracks didn't cue, whatever it is. Um, instead of just going like, oh, isn't this nice? Like it actually creates anxiety in us if we're not trained for it. Yeah. And you I mean, actually program the opposite way you alluded to that with the phones thing that like, mm -hmm. that's the way we live our lives. And if services are different, it feels dissonant. Um, yes. Yep. Zach Hicks in his book starts talking about the difference between, um, so he he uses the example of a theological dietitian. We want to give a variety of different things that the human person needs. We can't fit all of them into one day, into one meal, but we try to, to regiment this, this long-term nutritional goal 
in balance and avoid toxins and all these other harmful things and, Mm -hmm. and, and do this for the sake of the person long-term. Um, but that all of this is about, not about knowing about God, it's about knowing him. And he gives this Mm -hmm. dichotomy in sermons and sacraments like baptism and communion. Um, and also the structure. Mm -hmm. And this is where I think that dead space thing comes in. Um, Mm -hmm. the difference between a structure that helps teach you about God and, and just kind of facilitate who you are in the meantime would say like, what's a hype intro for the service would get people jazzed if people say jazzed. Um, but, but his alternative is if you're trying to structure the service to know God, the question for the beginning is how do I approach God rightly? Mm-hmm. Let's, let's structure a service around that. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. and I, I think I, I remember one respond retreat that we were at that either you were the speaker or led a workshop or something. Um, and, uh, at that church I was at, we, I had two elders assigned to the worship ministry. Like there were some mm-hmm. over different ministries more specifically. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of my worship ministry elders was in there and heard you talk about not starting with the most upbeat song you have all the time, mm-hmm. but starting mm-hmm. with something more anthemic, more uniting, more whatever. Um, to get people on the same page about God up mm-hmm. front rather than like this song's fast. Let's do it. It was mm-hmm. a, more about the content, but not necessarily just does it have a lot of good content. Mm-hmm. It was more about like how we interact with God and, um, and reminding us of like Lord, our God was the example or something like that. Reminding mm-hmm. us of uh, how God acted first. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're coming into the presence of the God who acted first and who invites us mm-hmm. in and whatever. Um, and I remember how blown away he was by that. He, he, uh, planned some of the services for our traditional services, uh, Mm -hmm. some of the songs for that. And that changed him from that, from that weekend on that he was always super thoughtful about that. How do we, Mm -hmm. how do we start with, with, uh, a way to remind ourselves of God and, and, uh, is a lot more anthemic and joins people together under what God has already done Mm -hmm. than like the fastest one. Yeah. Yeah. This, Mm. this, this structure idea, there's a lot to it. Like, yeah. And I, I like, um, I like, uh, Zach Hicks, metaphor. Uh, I think the dietitian, that's a, that's a good way to think about it. I probably, it's probably not my, my favorite metaphor. Because it sort of assumes that everybody needs all the same things, which to some degree is true, right? I mean, you know, like our bodies all need the same thing. I I probably lean a little bit more towards, you know, kind of an ecology, you know. uh, Yeah. What's the ecosystem, right? Because different different contexts require different things and at different seasons, right? So, you know, maybe we have to, we're doing communion like this for a season because, uh, well, you know, let's just, let me take a hypothetical example. You know, we used to do communion and we did our little shot glass and chiclet, um, bread chiclet, and we all took it kind of whenever we wanted to, and it was all separated. And especially, you know, during after, you know, right after COVID and everybody's got a mask on. So it's very, very individualized and, and personal, but just individualized, right? And so we go, you know what, like people are just detached from each other and 
you know, now we're past the mask mandates and we're past the things that we need to do to keep people safe and, you know, all that stuff, hypothetically speaking. And so we decide, you know, well, what if we did communion in a way that brought people together? So we invite families to take other families and to serve each other the Lord's Supper and to, you know, sort of the three, the three chords of, of uh, Ecclesiastes that are not easily broken. So this family and this family in Christ, and we join together, you know, it's things like that, you know, we start thinking. And so I think if we think of our churches or we think of our ministry, worship ministries, or our gathered times as um, what's the ecology of them? How does, how does each piece serve the growth and the thriving and the flourishing of this particular faith community, right? This faith community is an oak tree. The faith community down the street's a maple tree, right? Maybe they need different things at different seasons. One's dormant, one's in its budding phase, you know? Yeah. When you say ecology, I think like a pond full of different fish. Totally. I think like, cause, cause, uh, I think, I think that's a little more accurate. Dietitian is like, I, this one person needs this one thing at this one time. Mm-hmm. Um, but when we walk in on Sundays, some people just got a promotion and, uh, and, and had a great sweet time with their family the night before some mm-hmm. people lost an uncle who was close to them. And, and those two people are walking into Sunday at the same time. Yep. Um, yep. Yeah. That's exactly and, right. and meeting both of them. And I, I think the, the ecology example is good. Cause it's like in this season, it's good for the group that I talk about this thing or that we, mm-hmm. we make space for this, uh, mm-hmm. for this prayer activity or this, whatever for the group, even though it may not fit this individual, the best. I think that's yeah. good. And I, there's a, there's, that's part of the service orientedness of what it means to be gathered together as the body of Christ. It's, it's how we fulfill the rejoicing with those who rejoice and mourning with those who mourn. Cause sometimes I show up to church and I'm, I'm fine. But maybe our church as a collective needs to mourn because something happened, you know. Um, so personally, I don't feel like I'm grieving, but I'm I'm there not just for myself. I'm there to grieve alongside of those who maybe are, you know, maybe there's a majority or maybe we need to be led to grieve because we haven't, you know, or vice versa. Maybe we need to rejoice. And some people are coming in and it's it's heavy, you know, like life's sucking right now. Um but they can be called also to that, you know? And so, yeah, giving the space so that the whole uh, is being served, right? The, uh, like Paul says in Ephesians, that the, the whole building joining together rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. One thing that he talks about later in this chapter um, that I've always had at the forefront of my mind and is, has led me at times when I, when I've clashed with other people in worship ministry, it's mostly been about this, at least in my mind. Um, but is, uh, the dietitian, um, he doesn't talk about this as specifically, but, but being a dietitian aiming at their, um, their best interest versus being a buffet aiming Mm -hmm. at their, their biggest want. Mm -hmm. Um, he gets to some of these ideas later. Um, but this is a thing I've, I've struggled with as, um, in my, in my first couple of weeks in, uh, ministry at the church in Rala, um, somebody stopped me in Walmart. And of course it was a, tw- it was a 
more than a thousand person church in a town of 20,000. So mm-hmm. there's a high chance that somebody <laughs> I know is at Walmart um, yep. or somebody who's seen me at least. This guy stops me at Walmart and he said, he didn't say hi. He didn't say I go to your church. He said, hey, I go to the 930 service and because uh, I don't get up early enough for the traditional. But if you could do some more Twilight Paris in the 930, that would be great. <laughs> and I was like, I said, I'll, I'll, uh, I'll, okay, I'll think about it. And I walked no, out there and was like, who's Twilight Paris? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a that's too old of a reference for yeah, you. <laughs> my wife knew because um, I think that was uh, one of her first concerts. Um, but when she was like six, which means I would have been one. Um, uh huh. <laughs> so I had no idea who that was, but it was this like, it was it was uh, unless I get what I want, worship isn't going well. Um, mm-hmm. But what I've found, I don't know how strongly I should hold to this, but what I've found. Um, is that I feel a lot more fulfillment when I, when I feel like I'm giving people what they need. Um, mm-hmm. it, it makes me feel like, I think it's in Mark two, um, where Jesus talks about, um, not coming for, uh, those healthy and righteous already, but, um, being a doctor coming for the sick and the broken. Um, and, and it helps me identify with Jesus in that way. It helps me feel a little more significance and, in ministry that way, when I feel like I'm giving you what you need, even if it isn't Twilight Paris or it isn't like, like whatever you think you need in the moment, which is why this, uh, this is my first year and I don't know how I got away with this. Um, but in, uh, we've, our, our church here in Mount Vernon has never done anything like Advent before. Mm -hmm. And so over Advent, um, also communion is huge at our church. I, if I can Mm -hmm. make you jealous for a second, um, we have the little the little shot glass of grape juice, and then mm-hmm. somebody bakes the little communion things. There are mm. these like buttery little pie crust bites, mm. and theologically, communion should be delicious. Uh, <laughs> like whole first century of the church, they're doing those agape feasts. They have uh-huh. bread. Nobody nobody got that cardboard stuff. Nobody made that. They didn't buy it. They made it. Probably, maybe they bought it from the market, but it was bread. Like theologically, communion should be delicious. Um, but anyway, <laughs> it's a big part of our church. We have an entire mm. kitchen in the back that's like super industrial sized, just for us to have meals after church because communion and mm. our meals are tied together and and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. And over, I I had to celebrate Advent, my first Christmas here, so we didn't sing a single song about Jesus showing up until mm. December twenty, whatever twenty third. Because yeah. we do Christmas yeah. Eve Eve. Okay. Um, but I took away communion for three weeks. And I I, re- <laughs> I know. I know. Uh, I replaced it with some like prayer pomp- prompts full of like longing and anticipation and waiting. It wasn't just gone. Uh, there, we were doing something else. But I was like, he's not here yet. That's mm-hmm. that's Advent. Is we're waiting mm-hmm. for him to show up in the in the first century. We're waiting for him to show up. Uh, at the end of time, and we're waiting for him to show up um, in the middle of all the tough things in our life, in the middle of a cancer diagnosis and whatever, um, and in the middle of uh, infertility, we're waiting for him to show up. And so we're going to hold off on communion until uh, that was so dangerous. Mm-hmm. I, I, if you're I, listening to this podcast, don't do this. Yeah. If your church practices <laughs> weekly communion, do not follow my example. 
but I, I, I ran it by my senior pastor. He was like, Ooh, that is dangerous. And then we ran it past, uh, uh, some people that we meet with every week to talk about the sermon and get ideas and whatever. And they were all on board. So we, we went ahead mm-hmm. with it. Um, cool. mm-hmm. and it was, it was tough because there were some people kind of unhappy with it. Of course, no, nobody's so unhappy that they were like trying to get me fired or something, but, but it it felt like we were missing something and they didn't enjoy that. But mm-hmm. overall it helped, um, helped us embody the, the advent and the Christmas season by taking mm-hmm. something away, creating a longing, bringing it mm-hmm. back and and letting you know, it's okay that you don't have some microwave two minute answers right now. Mm-hmm. It's okay that you've been waiting for years um, mm-hmm. to see how the situation is going to turn out. Uh, mm-hmm. in my head that was giving them something they they need versus what they want mm-hmm. and so I struggle with this spot near the end of the chapter uh, where he talks about giving them some of what they want because that'll make them I, I don't remember the exact verbiage but uh, making sure to give them some of what they want as long as it isn't poison uh, mm-hmm. to like help make them more compliant there's a different way he said that it was way more nuanced, but yeah, that's yeah. something I've struggled with for a long time. Well, I think, I think, you know, really for me, this, this is a shepherding, it's a shepherding component to go back to your example, to this guy that, you know, sees you in Walmart. You have to remember that when people say things, there's always a deeper reality happening in them. You know, what's, what's the question behind that? kind of terse comment in some ways it's it's got an explosiveness to it right that comment does i go to the 9 30 service can't wake up i need more twilight paris what's behind that what what's at the heart of that thing there right there you know maybe there's there's a long there's a longing to connect to god in a way that i've understood before you know, in a way that reminds me maybe of a time when I, when I was feeling near to God or was feeling God's nearness. Um, that is a better question than to ask as a worship leader or to ask your team, how do we help facilitate that kind of thing? Because that's what it's getting at is, is desire. You know, what is my desire for God? And that's, that's really what that that guy's asking, I think. And that's oftentimes what people are when, you know, and sometimes they just, they're just rude about it and they don't know how they're trying to express something, you know? Um, and so you have to figure out a way part. I think so much of pastoral work is getting below the surface of what is said or done and trying to look at the heart. And of course, Jesus was so masterful at this. Um, seeing below the surface of their question, right? When the, when the teacher of the law comes up to him and asks him what the greatest commandment is, you know, and then he tells them the story about the good Samaritan, <laughs> which one was the neighbor, right? That question pierced the heart of that man. Cause it got, it got below all of the, Hey, I'm smart. I've been studying scripture for a long, my whole life. You know, I can stand kind of toe to toe with you, Jesus. And Jesus goes, I don't care how smart you are. What's going on in your heart? 
yeah, you, you say, you know, the law, again, this goes back to the knowing about versus knowing, you know, about the law, but if you really knew the law, Dallas Willard calls knowledge, he defines knowledge as interactive relationship. If you had an interactive relationship with law and not just laws and like a rule or, or a guideline, but actually the one from whom the law, from whom the, the law comes, right? Then you would know what the law actually means, which is part of the reason why this, we have to be given the spirit to be written on our hearts like Jeremiah 31 prophesies, right? Because then we actually know the intention and desire of the one from whom the law came. And so I think that's the, the same principle is at work uh, with us as we talk about this topic of giving people what they want versus what they need. It takes perception. And sometimes we accommodate to people, um, but we only accommodate to people if it's going to draw them closer to the heart of Christ. That's why we accommodate. Um, and I think, I think there is a piece of, I, I think you see that happen in Jesus' own ministry and life. You know, he, he starts to accommodate things and people, quite frankly, get really peeved at him for doing it. You know, there's multiple healings on the Sabbath in the synagogue. You know, why couldn't he have just waited till after church? Right? Well, no, he accommodates, right? He accommodates to the guy that's got the shriveled hand. And he says, no, stretch it out right here, right now. We don't need to wait. So there, there's, that's a pastoral skill that has to be learned for sure. And I think it I think it pertains to this this whole idea that Hicks brings up in this chapter. Yeah. That's that's one that I'm still learning. <laughs> oh my gosh. Like, yeah. It's yeah. hard. It's hard because it's not so black and white. That's yeah. the problem, you yeah. know. And and I think when you make it black and white, you actually miss the point. Um and it, you know, it's it's easy to put things into categories, but then you start living real life with people and human beings that are super nuanced and, you know, have a mixture of motivations and <laughs> contradictory desires. And so, yeah. And it's, it's tough because songs are, are powerful. There's, I mean, there's, we both know there's way more to worship ministry than just singing. Um, but like part of what's at, at this guy's heart, I'm assuming I didn't stop and ask him four years ago or whatever. Um, but but part of what's at this guy's heart is just how powerful singing is. Zach mm -hmm. Hicks says, sung worship is one of the most holistic ways we can experience, like hear and know, theology, mm -hmm. because songs summon our whole self, mind, mm -hmm. body, soul, intellect, will, and emotions. Yeah. And it's, it's I, I know for a lot of people, um, I heard Matt Stafford talk about, maybe it was 10,000 Reasons or... Uh, or our God or some, something else from that era. Um, but how one of those songs became really deep and meaningful to him. Yes. Cause the song's good. Yes. Cause whatever, but also cause it was sung the first service after the Joplin tornado. Mm -hmm. And for a lot of people I can only imagine is a deep, meaningful song, not cause it's like imagining being in the presence of God, but because they sang it at their aunt's funeral who they were super close to and, um, and, and what's happening in songs is about the lyrics, but also 
for some people at some times is way deeper than that, way deeper mm-hmm. than even how, how the music interacts with it, how whatever it's, mm-hmm. it's to a, a core memory level that, that when they hear that song and sing that song, they're not, they're not singing a song, they're reliving a, a relationship or, mm-hmm. or a, a person lost. Um, yeah. 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 Our senses, our senses are what help carry memory for us. That's why when you see something that reminds you of something else, it can become so powerful or smell, especially, you know, scientifically, physiologically is one of the strongest ones. So when we smell a smell that, it, I mean, it's like you're transported in that moment. Um, and like, like he says in that quote, which I love that, that's a great way to, to describe it. Um, really pulling, pulling all of who we are together. And that's why, that's why music is so powerful kind of the combination of right brain and left brain uh types of types of interaction but uh that that is what's happening is we're we're being transported you know through those memories um not just we tend to think of remembering something as like a just a cognitive exercise or like a mental exercise but true remembrance uh, has to do with with the transportation of yourself in a moment back to a previous moment as if it were happening again and the experience of it you know and you're right the songs inevitably they they carry meaning for us they carry memory and uh that's why that's you know that's probably one apologetic for why we shouldn't why we shouldn't abandon hymns yeah it's because of the memory they carry the I, I hear a lot of people uh, diss on the the nostalgia. I want to sing I'll Fly Away because I remember singing it when I was a kid. Um, mm-hmm. But do they just re- like it because they've always known it? Or does that that transport them back to young faith, to mm-hmm. their their faith community when they were a kid, their parents and their their whoever? Yep. I know um, the the Greek word for, for this kind of remembering, it's called anamnesis. Mm-hmm. Um, to get dorky for a second, uh, I was trying to think of a, <laughs> I have a coffee roaster and I, <laughs> I was trying to think I was giving out enough bags of this to my friends. I gave some to Josh before he left. Uh, and I was like, I need to put a good name on this. And my whole master's program, like one of the central themes is, is, uh, anamnesis through uh-huh. like, like you celebrate the church calendar, like the Jews used to celebrate their, their feasts. Mm-hmm. And you anamnetically, that's hard to say, remember something <laughs> by like reliving it. So like, yeah, yeah, so we we take away communion for Advent helps you feel like you're remembering it rather than just think about remembering it. You uh-huh. feel like you're in it, whatever. And I was like, I should use anamnesis for my for my coffee roaster name. I was like, because mm. it takes if it's that good, it takes you back to that cup of coffee that got you into coffee. That's so, so dumb. But but that's so true that like. Certain uh, <laughs> uh, seeing certain, I think like clownfish or flounder, whatever. I don't know. Um, in my in my childhood uh, home, the the bathroom had this like lining, like where a chair guard would be around the middle of the wall, wrapped around the room with all these mm-hmm. little fish on it. And one was a clownfish, and it takes me back. There's no reason. I yep. I don't know that I've ever seen a clownfish like in person. <laughs> But like a picture of one, a drawn picture of one takes me back to that moment. I know for a lot of people, 
who've gone through traumatic situations, um, even like post-traumatic stress disorder, a lot of that is you're being sucked back into the the moment of your trauma and you mm-hmm. relive it. Um, mm-hmm. It was hard enough the first time, mm-hmm. let alone the hundredth time that mm-hmm. that your your mind sucks you back into that. And so, yeah, we do experience um, memory through our through our sensations, through our uh, senses. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's well, really isn't that fascinating. I just that just makes me think for for a second. Uh, you know, that's the PTSD, sort of the negative attribution or way that that comes about. But if we have the capacity to do that and it in a negative sense, and it's like a difficult, right? That means we also have a positive capacity to do that. And that's actually where this comes from. So in essence, God's made us to be able to do this, to put ourselves back into situations and experiences, you know, some some religious traditions call it out of body experience or whatever it is, but there is a sense in which we are actually going back. And and perhaps this is actually the way, you know, God exists outside of time. And maybe that's part of that image of Godness in us is a sort of inhabiting multiple time, time space points simultaneously in as much as we can, you know, and in, in as much as we can in our, in our finiteness, but of course God can in his infinite capacity. Yeah. Um, Zach Hicks takes most of this chapter cause he's, he's writing to worship pastors everywhere. Um, and he makes the comment, he, he talks about sermon and, and sacrament like baptism communion and the structure of your service. Um, and he makes short comments about all those little, little paragraph statements. And then he says, I know for most of you, singing is the only thing you're in charge of. Music and, and selecting music is the only thing you're in charge of. And you can't change sermon and the other stuff, structure and all that. Um, but so, so if you're concerned about the singing part and you want to hear what he says about that, I would just encourage you to read the second half of that chapter, like page 72 and on. I feel I feel like he doesn't touch on the sermon, the sacrament, the structure as much. Um and and on top of that, the the extra stuff you can do outside of singing enough. So I, I want to talk about that for a little bit because um I I remember my team uh from Rala when I went to that last respond retreat in 2021. Uh me and Josh were both there. Uh Josh was leading worship, and we both told each other that we were transitioning from our jobs to other jobs. I was moving to the city that he was leaving from pretty much. And uh, it was really sad for me, but I remember my team raving about how good the weekend worship experience was. And the biggest part of that, yeah, you guys sounded great and you led great music and all that, but, but the interactive moments, the reflective moments, the, the moments outside of singing um, were so powerful for them. I, there were a bunch of reflective moments, but one of the most powerful, um, uh, in our, in our group discussion after is, uh, you had asked us all, we all had a, a notebook and a pen and you had asked us all to sit down and draw a picture, um, of the first time we remember experiencing God, um, and to do it with our non-dominant hand to kind of live, live into the, the childhood of that moment or whatever. and so. Me and my group, like 20 minutes later, we're all showing each other our pictures and all should have been embarrassed by him. <laughs> me especially. 
<laughs> but just like walking through them and explaining them and how powerful that was mm-hmm. to, to number one, do something in, in gathered worship other than singing, which singing's great, but to do something outside of the box mm-hmm. um, and also to do something that interacted with our memory and our experience and, and our mm-hmm. story. Um, talk to me about some, some of the, the things worship leaders can do um, as, as they're trying to create a balanced diet of corporate worship, things they can do outside of songs um, mm-hmm. that can, that can have a, a good impact on, on people's lives and, and thoughts. Yeah. Well, uh, I mean, like I, like I mentioned before, I think uh, creating space for people to be reflective, to have some stillness and to give you, you, you have to guide people in that, right? If they if they're not used to it or they don't know how to do it or where to go with it, then, you know, to just sort of go, OK, you have five minutes to just be quiet and not do anything. That's not helpful to people. They need a guide, you know, so that probably that might necessitate you actually becoming more familiar with those spaces uh, yourself so that you're not trying to lead people uh, into something that you you actually don't know anything about either, because that'll become pretty apparent pretty quickly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, if you don't. Um, so I'd say that's, that's a big thing, honestly, just try it. Just try giving people a couple of minutes to be quiet and ask them to bring, you know, I do this often when I lead worship, ask people to bring all of the concerns that are on their heart and to just visualize them being in the presence of God right there. You know, we don't need to leave that stuff at the door. Bring it right here. Where else is it going to actually get dealt with? We're talking about this is the God of the universe with universal power. So if something's going to happen with those concerns, it's going to be here. Right. We take the concerns to the to the being that can do something about them. So do that, you know. And then I'm not trying to divorce myself. Okay, I'm worshiping God, so I'm going to be happy. This goes back to our very first, you yeah. know, this yeah. podcast. So I think that that space is important. Um, one thing I've done a lot of a lot of times is a sort of a corporate version of Lexio Divina. Um, Protestants like to talk a lot about how we believe Scripture is inspired and you know, has this mysterious supernatural quality about it. But then we talk about studying it and we sort of dissect it as if it's some sort of frog on the table, right? Um, not to say anything about, you know, biblical hermeneutics, you know, historical critical method, whatever. That's totally fine. And there, it has its place. But what about the mystery of Holy Scripture? If you really believe that it's inspired, that means infused with the spirit of God. That's what that word means. Then how about you let it speak on its own, right? One of the things I love about Lexia Divina is that it's less about reading scripture and it's about reading, letting scripture read you. So try it. Again, you may need to become familiar with it yourself. Um, and here's another resource for that if, if uh if you would like one, there's a, there's a wonderful app called, uh, Lexio 365. It's put out by the, uh, some, some, uh, British evangelicals actually it's done wonderfully. They do a morning prayer and they do an evening prayer. It's usually, 
uh, around 10 minutes or less. Wonderful reflection. So it's not, it's not Lexio Divina proper. It's not like the more traditional way of doing it, but it captures the essence of it. It's done very, very well. So if you're looking for something to sort of get you into this more reflective, how do I interact with space and this stuff? That, that's a great resource, Lexio 365 app. Um, so I, I can't tell you the number of times that I have done this. I have never done it and thought, you know, I probably shouldn't do that again. Um, or that wasn't really very helpful because inevitably every time someone will come up to me afterwards and go, you know what? We read the scripture and this was the like this was the word or this was the phrase that God brought to my mind. And it like it was just like immediately I knew like God was trying to talk to me about this or invite me into this space or this thing's going on in my life. And this is how God was like speaking to that. So uh, that's one of those things that you can do. You know, if you're a word centric church, um, then then actually live into the mystery of Holy Scripture itself. Yeah. I I like how the the book of Hebrews says the the word of God is living and active, sharper than a two-edged sword. Um but but the way you talked about it being dead or us dissecting it like it's dead. Um that that's why I've always um another idea I that I've been using for a little bit is just having people on stage read scripture. Yeah. Like a passage of scripture and not try to explain it. Just like read it and let it speak for itself, mm-hmm. um, especially if it's a person who's not a a hired minister kind of person. If it's just a random congregation member or, or especially like if it's somebody with like a theater background, children's ministry background, where they're good at telling stories. Um, mm-hmm. If if you have a dungeon master in your church uh, who plays Dungeons and Dragons, they may be great at it. Uh, seriously, that's not a joke. Um, uh, like, like letting scripture speak for itself. Cause I remember mm-hmm. thinking like, uh, uh, one of, one of the core convictions of a church I was at was like, we're, we're biblically grounded and scriptures at the center of everything we do and whatever. Um, and then the only scripture on Sunday morning was one verse out of Proverbs, one verse out of Colossians or something, a mm-hmm. little passage from Ephesians. And I was mm-hmm. like, I I just want to hear scripture speak for a couple minutes. And so I had mm-hmm. some different people read it. Um, that's been really powerful. We have a guy at our church in his sixties, been serving in children's ministry for a long time. Um, and he has some physical disabilities. So there's a lot of areas he can't serve in. Um, mm-hmm. He gets out of breath really easy and, and can't walk mm-hmm. super far, but he can walk up on stage and with two days notice present a memorized 18 verse chunk of scripture like mm. nobody's business. And it's mm-hmm. been incredible every mm-hmm. time he does it. Um, yeah. And he's inspired other people to be like, I bet I could memorize yep. 18 something verses of scripture and present it in front of the church and um, stuff like that. Uh, mm-hmm. I know we can, we can certainly borrow from, from uh, more charismatic churches, our brothers and sisters and um, add more testimony. Um, yeah. And uh, there's always the altar call response, but like, response in any way at any time. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I, w- I was going to say that the one other thing I think that uh, I've done on numerous occasions that I feel like always yield something very good is, uh, and, and it, it gets scary because uh, you, you never know uh, what's going to come, but is like open mics. Yeah. Where you go like, hey, here's, here's a prompt, like testify, witness, you know, tell, 
That was one of the things that I, and I started doing this at College Heights and some of the, the different venues for worship we would have if we did a worship night or something like that. We did it on Sunday morning, actually, one time. We cut, I think we did like a 10-minute sermon, and then we were just like, okay, you guys like just witness to God's work in your life. Tell us stories, like, you know, tell the church its own stories and remind her of, of the power of God. Um, but it, you know, it, it gets, it gets scary because one of the things that as as a churches get larger, typically is you lose, you lose that kind of thing at smaller churches. You still maybe have a, uh, a prayer request time at the end of the service, maybe. And somebody stands up and, okay, anybody got any prayer requests? And then you just pray for them, right? And the community knows the stories that exist within. As you get bigger, obviously that gets harder and harder to do. So still giving opportunities for that so that people don't forget, no, God is actually working. You know, um, you may not see it in your own life and that there could be multitude, uh, a multitude of reasons for that. Um, but God is still working. Don't forget that. So. Um, this has been a great conversation to wrap it up. He, uh, Zach Hicks has this awesome thing at the end where, where he's giving one last plea, um, for people to lead worship, uh, with God in the room rather than to God somewhere else or about God somewhere else. He says, uh, if we want our congregations to be healthy and vibrant, let us allow the spirit to lavishly serve us a large portion of Jesus. Let's sing songs that revel in all his perfect law abiding work, his impeccable track record, his overabundance of merit, his righteous earning of the father's full pleasure for us. Let's sing songs that glory in his saving death, his blood-bought ransom, his complete payment of debt, his unflinching absorption of the Father's wrath, his heroic sacrifice, his full and final suffering, his finished work for us. And I think that's a, a good word. Whatever we choose to lead, however we choose to um, try to give a balanced, nutritious diet of, of worship emotions and experiences um, for different kinds of people. Uh, let it always be a serving of Jesus, um, interacting with Jesus, interacting with God uh, in our gathered times of worship, because that's who people really need. Yeah. Yeah. It's good. Thank you, Josh, for being here. Really yeah. loved our conversation today. Absolutely, man. Thanks. Thank you for listening to the Respond Worship Podcast. Make sure to check out the show notes for links to our website and social media. Follow and subscribe to keep up with new episodes and feel free to rate and review us. We want this to be the best possible resource for you and your team, so your feedback is extremely important. We also want to hear from you. Send us your questions, content suggestions, ministry wins, and stories, and we will gladly consider them for future episodes. Just email us at podcast at respondworship.org. That's podcast at respondworship.org. We look forward to welcoming you into another conversation in a couple of weeks. Take care.